Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Ireland's Birth Stories, a podcast created for women to share their experiences with pregnancy and birth. My name is Cora Gernon and I've created this space to enable women to share their experiences from start to finish without feeling shy about the detail. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so through Patreon. I have attached the link on the website. So if you just visit the website, irelandsbirthstories.ie, you can then find the Patreon link there. Thank you to those that have. I'm delighted to say this month the podcast is brought to you by Ergo Baby. So Ergo Baby was launched in 2003 by mother and clothing designer Karen Frost. Living in Maui, she was searching for a baby carrier that would allow her to enjoy her active outdoor lifestyle and daily routine without having to sacrifice precious bonding time. After trying seven different carriers with varying degrees of success, Karen developed her own soft, structured carrier. And since then, the brand has been on a mission to empower families to bond, grow and thrive by creating premium baby products with comfort and mind while never compromising on function and quality. Today, Ergo Baby offers a broad range of award-winning baby carriers, including the new OmniBreeze. So the OmniBreeze innovation design means both wearer and baby benefit for maximum airflow and maximum comfort. Its lightweight, soft flex mesh allows both parent and baby to stay cool and dry all day, while padded shoulder straps and lumbar support ensure parents' comfort. And its deep bucket seat and padded neck support mean baby stays comfortable too. Suitable from birth up to 20 kg and ergonomically offering all four carry positions, the OmniBreeze is the only carrier parents will ever need. Like all Ergo Baby carriers, the OmniBreeze is designated hip healthy by the International Hip Dysplasia Institute and comes with the Ergo Promise Lifestyle Guarantee. Head over to ergobaby.ie and use the code IBSER. GO10 to avail of 10% off all carriers and wraps valid from the 17th to the 24th of May 2021. In this week's episode, I chat to Kirsty and she talks me through her one pregnancy and the birth of her little girl Mia. So before we go into this week's episode, I do want to highlight that we Kirsty's story is quite distressing. She talks about um, a placental abruption, which was quite severe. So this may not be the episode for you at the moment. So Kirsty, as I said, suffered a placental abruption after a severe blood loss of 38 weeks, which was kind of the first indicator that there was something was wrong. So Kirsty underwent an 11 hour surgery and also had to have a hysterectomy to save her life. She talks us through all of those details surrounding the reasons why. She also chats to us about recovery. So the months and even years later, how she felt and what she had to deal with. Um, and I also asked Kirsty to share with me the changes made in this specific hospital since um, her experience, which I have shared on the website. Another incredible story of resilience. And I'm very grateful to Kirsty for sharing as much as she did with us. Okay, so Kirsty, you're very welcome to the Ireland's Birth Stories podcast. If you want to just start by telling me a little bit about yourself and your family. So my name's obviously Kirsty. Um my daughter's nine now. She was nine in November, and it's just us three, me, my husband, and my daughter. Um, she was my first, and because of my story, she's my last. Um, yeah, just the three of us. So we just dive straight into your pregnancy. Did you plan on conceiving when you did? Um yes and no. We'd we'd spoke about it. I'd come off contraception, but it all happened really really quickly it was like a huge shock to the system um 
And you know, when you kind of, you know what you're aiming towards, but then when it happens, it's like, oh my God, how did this happen? (laughs) It was such a shock. But yeah, no, it was definitely planned. It was definitely where we were headed in. Um, I didn't quite expect it as soon as, as it was. So and how did you know you were pregnant? Did you feel it? Did you feel it quite earlier on or did you miss a period or? No, do you know what? I didn't, I didn't miss a period. I had my first, I had my first period even when I was pregnant. And the only sign I had was I was a little bit sore. My, my boobs were a bit sore um, and I just felt a little bit sicky, but I didn't get any sickness. I just had a really odd feeling. And because I'd stopped taking my pill, I actually thought it was that coming out of my system. I thought it was my body okay. sort of adapting um and it was only because my husband said oh maybe it's because you're pregnant he went out for a jog and I thought oh my god what if it is that did like six pregnancy tests and all six come back positive by the time he'd come back for his jog I had them all lined up on the edge of the bath like oh my god look at these do you think they're all wrong and he's like I very much doubt that all of them are wrong but yeah cool that's brilliant so what did you decide then? You obviously, did you go to your GP to just get everything confirmed? Yeah, um, so it's really strange over here. Like I am, at the time I lived in East London. So down in the South in London and um, you, everything's so busy and there's obviously so many people that you kind of never see the same person twice. So I went to my GP. I let them know that I thought I was pregnant. And even though you'd done a test, you still have to have it confirmed. So obviously they ran another test, confirmed that I was. And then a midwife gets in touch with you and the ball starts rolling and your care kind of becomes part of the team. Okay. So um, the hospital that I was under, you joined a, a colour. So I think I was on like the purple team. So I could see maybe one of 15 midwives. So I, I don't think actually through the whole thing until the day I walked out of hospital, had I seen the same midwife twice. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah, you don't see... Uh, you fortunately some people might you might just cross paths because of timing and stuff but I never did so I was on this purple team and I went for sort of all the general checkups that you need and then my scan date come up so I headed off to the hospital for that had my first scan um it was at my first scan that they told me my placenta was extremely low lying um I think it's placenta previa um but nothing to panic about I was really early on and, and quite often it moved naturally but if it doesn't then we'll discuss maybe cesareans, maybe other options if the placenta was still blocking the birth canal. Um, so I knew that really early on. Um, and then I had a, another scan, not at the time that I should have had it. It was still a little bit earlier than what the next one should have been. But at that one, my placenta had already moved up. So okay. there was no issues at all. And that was literally the only thing I had with any concern through the whole pregnancy. I hadn't had any bleeding. I hadn't had, um, I, I had swelling, but only normal swelling. I had no sickness. Um, I was uncomfortable, but just because of size, really, mm. I was colossal. I had this huge bump on the front of me. It was absolutely massive. Um, and I was showing so early on, even, even probably about 10 weeks, I kind of like was really struggling for people to not notice I I had to tell people because it was so obvious um but yeah it was such a smooth pregnancy right until week 38 39 I was literally full term when the smallest of issues started and and that was it and had you thought about preferences in terms of the labor and birth had you done any prep there yeah, so again, you get um, antenatal classes if you choose to go to them um, and you get a sort of final session with your midwife where you would sit and talk about your birth plan and, and, and what you want or some ideas that you've got. And literally the only thing we'd discussed was a TENS machine. I, I'd made the decision I was going to wear a TENS machine and, and I was going to have no other pain relief. Um, I didn't want an epidural. I didn't want, um, I didn't even want gas and air actually. I've got um for a long long time as long as I can remember I've always had a phobia of being sick okay so I, I've got a metaphobia and it's a severe phobia um and it kind of really twisted how I wanted to, to deliver because I was so concerned that normally in pregnancy or normally in, in delivery you're 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 sick you vomit because of everything that's going on and the hormones and the pain um so I already had that fear 
Um, I didn't want to add to that with drugs and other things that I know make women feel quite queasy. So I decided I was going au naturel and I was going to do as much of it as I could with just me and my TENS machine. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's what I planned. And I wrote out this big, long um, like birth plan for the hospital that I had in my baby bag ready to go. Um, and it sort of listed all of that. Like, I'm really fearful of being sick. I don't want this. I don't want that. I want this. I want that. Um, and then in, in big capital letters, I think I might have even highlighted it in red, actually, at the bottom. I just put, please ignore all of this. Mm. If there is any problems with me or the baby, do what you have to do. And, and I didn't ever think that that was ever going to have to come into play. But I was just so I think I was overthinking everything and so trying to cover every base. Like, OK, I really don't want this. But OK, if it's an emergency, you're going to give me that. Like, I just didn't yeah. want them to go buy the book with it and then me miss out on things or put myself in danger so I kind of left it all quite open and covered everything in it really and so did you did it, did you do a lot of research and reading then to come to such a comprehensive list of what um, of your of what you would you would like for your preferences well yeah and I, I don't, didn't overly research it I think um the antenatal class was so focused on pephidine and on epidurals and gas and air and that was really all the class spoke about and it, it we got to the end of the first session and I actually went over to the I'm not sure if she was a midwife or um but she was obviously somebody working in maternity to be taking mm. the class but I went over and I said to her I don't know if this is the class for me is this like aimed towards the, the drug side of delivery is there other classes to talk about water births and she said there is but it, it's in like the other weeks so I, I sat tight and held on for the other weeks to come and I actually missed two of the weeks out of the four um because I was unwell or things had happened that I couldn't make those dates and potentially they were the natural okay weeks that I'd missed um so I kind of then spurred off and did a tiny bit of research myself. But in all honesty, I didn't look into too much because I just decided I'm just going to do it myself. I'm not going to have anything that she suggested. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I didn't, because I am such a wimp, like a huge hospital wimp, I, I just thought the, the less that I know, the less scared I'm going to be almost. And I... Mm even ums and ahs about the hospital visit because they invited you in to have a little look around see where the delivery wards were and um, see where they moved you to and from for antenatal, prenatal, all the different sections. And um, I ums and ahs about going to that because I thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to make me more fearful because I'm going to go in and hear these women screaming in labour and, and it's going to scare me. But I did go and do that. But, yeah, I did kind of just out of the fear of being afraid didn't research too much to be honest yeah no that's a this was a way of protecting yourself as well yeah 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 and possibly one of my downfalls because I um the, the start of my um my whole delivery mm. started with a really heavy bleed um and when I say heavy I mean heavy heavy bleed um by the time I'd got rushed to hospital um what I had left on my pad was minimal because it almost come away in a gush of one go um and then I had no further bleeding so what they see on the pad was just a few spots and they actually put it down to being a show and I believe that I walked out of hospital literally 45 minutes after this ridiculously heavy bleed believing it was just a show and not questioning any further because I'd done so little research and I didn't okay. Okay. know what a show would look like um, and I didn't know to question it. So was this at the 30, was this the start of everything then? Was this at the 38 weeks? That was the start, yeah, the, the, okay. the first heavy bleed. I got up in the middle of the night and I actually thought um, my waters had broke. I'd, I was standing in the kitchen getting a drink. I had the lights off because I literally just ran into the kitchen, grab a drink, go back to bed. And as I stood at the kitchen sink, I thought my waters had blo broke because I just felt this gush, quickly turned the light on. And the kitchen floor, the walls, it had splashed up to the, the top cupboards. It was just a wash with blood, with big mm. clots. Um, it just, uh, by the time I'd sort of screamed and actually like gone crazy, my husband was at the door with trainers on and that was it. We were gone and we was on our way to the hospital. 
So then when you reach the hospital, yeah, they, they just, they thought it was just a show. Dismissed okay. it as a show. And again, I didn't take any pictures of it. It was such a rush. It was quick, get out, go. Um, my mum had whipped in in between us going and coming and, and whatnot and cleaned it up because she didn't want me to come back in a panic. So I had nothing to prove how heavy this bleed was. Um, and yeah, I believed that it was just a show and they believed it was just a show from what they were left to see because of what I presented with was, was so minimal because it was just one big gush and then that was it. And how did you feel in yourself? Did you feel, did you feel weak or did you do feel off or anything? Um, I did. I felt really strange. Um, so I'd had quite a lot of back pain, but again, you're heavily pregnant. Mm. You, you expect it. So I hadn't put the additional back pain down to anything other than just, um, I'm now at near on 40 weeks, I'm full term and, and I'm heavier than ever. I've got this huge baby on the front of me. Um, so I didn't overly think it, but yeah, I, I was in quite a bit of pain with my back. I was in quite a bit of pain with the bottom of my bump. Um, and I had these headaches as well that were kind of like foggy headaches that you kind of couldn't even think through almost. They were just so consuming. But again, put it down to hormones and pregnancy. Didn't put it down to any specific condition or problems. So do you want to bring us through then the journey of I suppose, the next couple of but what happened yeah, next? So yeah. Straight home, thought I'd had this show, straight home, sitting tight, thinking we're only a few more days away from delivery, really, um, or a few more days away from my due date, should I say. Um, and then two, maybe three days later, the same thing happened again. Got up in the night and huge gush of blood. Um, in between the first bleed and the second bleed, although I hadn't overly done much research, I still hadn't looked too deeply into it, but I had convinced myself that they were wrong and it wasn't a show and that something was wrong. Um, but I think a fear of speaking out and a fear of what could be wrong kept me from saying anything. I was so frightened that something could have been really wrong and that's what that bleed was, that I, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to pretend it's not happening almost. Mm. Um, and then when I had this second bleed, obviously I couldn't ignore that. So straight back up the hospital. And it was at that point that I really found my voice. And when they said to me, oh, there's no signs of labor. Um, your cervix looks absolutely fine. They hadn't scanned the baby. Um, they hadn't scanned me at all for either bleed. Um, and on, it was only on the second bleed that they'd done an internal examination. And it was on that one that I said, I'm really sorry, but... Um, you're deluded if you think I'm leaving. And she said to me, oh, um, but, but you're not in any active labour. There's nothing to concern us. The baby's heartbeat's okay because they've checked the heartbeat. Your heartbeat's fine. Your, um, your uh, blood pressure's fine. There's no signs of, and all they kept mentioning was preeclampsia. There's no signs of preeclampsia. Like, okay, is there any signs of anything else? Is there anything else I should be worried about? And kind of every time they said to me the baby's heartbeat's okay I kind of got back in my box a little bit and was like well if the baby's heart's all right I suppose nothing mm -hmm. can be wrong and then I kind of thought no hang on a minute two really big bleeds something could be wrong so I kept sort of flaring back up again and being like no I'm not leaving um I want this I want that and and I kept saying just scan me let me just see the baby and they were like oh we we've got no need to scan don't worry everything's fine everything was just reassurance reassurance and, um, but that would have been the like you needed a certain amount of reassurance, needed, but you weren't good. Yeah. No, and I, all I was getting was sort of soft reassurance, not yeah. actual factual reassurance. And um, this consultant came in the room really late at night, and he was like, "Okay, so um, the, the the midwife you were just with said that you're ready to be discharged." I said, "Oh no, you're not listening to me. I'm not leaving." But I know I'm not in labour, but something's wrong, and I'm not going anywhere. And he actually agreed to admit me into the ward upstairs so the ward upstairs was obviously for for people going in for inductions so I said okay well why am I going upstairs and he said well listen you're overdue now by now we was so I was due on the 11th of the 11th of the 11th and by now we was on the 13th okay so I was overdue so he was like let's just take you up let's just induce you I don't know where this blood's come from you're right there is some level of concern there the baby seems fine. You seem fine. So 
your persistence is basically what's making me take you up there but we're gonna go with it let's go so off I go upstairs um spent the next night upstairs waiting for a room down on delivery and there wasn't a room um rode it out till, till the next evening so we were now on the night of the 14th um no sorry the night of the 13th I was on and um he come in and said right we're gonna take you down in the morning and induce you and I said to him I've, I've, I said I've, I've got a small problem I said I think I'm already in labor he said oh but they've only just examined you you, you can't be I said I, I really feel like I am can you have labor from your back first and he was like well you can of course he said but we've examined you and you're not in labor so again believe them off I go down to delivery world and they put in um, the induction gel. I think it was like a pessary gel. And I'd gone from nothing to three centimetres in about six minutes. Um, oh, and it was just like, this, yeah, it was this big woof of pain. And I just didn't know really what to do with myself. And, and bless my husband, he's not great in hospitals. He's not great with needles. He's not great in any sort of situation like that. So his focus was the TENS machine. So I got it all set up, put it all on, said, right, this is the button. When I say now, push the button. And he was in such a fluster, he kept forgetting to push the button. And he was just like, well, what do you mean now? Like, well, now means now, push the button. So I probably went through my first two hours of contractions without anything at all because he couldn't even manage to push the button on time because he was in such a fluster with everything. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of crept up, crept up, and it got more and more intense. Um, and then it got to the point where they came in and examined me and said I was at five centimetres. And I said, like, this is agony. I said, like, I am in real pain. Like, in my mind, I just kind of thought, yes, it hurts, but it's manageable. And, and if you're strong enough, you can deal with it. And it's only when you get to the pushing stages that you really need the pain relief. And, and that's when it's going to be the real agony. Um, but no, this was pain. I, I was really struggling. Um, and the midwife come in and I said, I know I said I don't want any drugs, but I'm not sure how much longer I can do in this pain. Like, it, it's really bad. And for me to say that with, the, I know I have a high pain threshold, but for me to say this, I know I'm in pain and I think mm. I might need to do something about it now before I progress too far and then I can't do anything. And she's like, okay, well, I can speak to the anaesthetist and see if we can do you an epidural. I said, okay, let's go down that route. And um they put the epidural in about an hour or so later. And she literally said, right, I'm just going to go and fill out the paperwork and I'll be back. And as she walked out of the room, um, I just felt this. I could still feel everything, even though I had the epidural. So I was waiting for it to almost kick in. I, I just thought, oh, give it time and it'll kick in. Like when you take a paracetamol, it takes a little mm. while. It certainly wasn't instant for me. I could feel everything. And all of a sudden, I just felt this huge cramping feeling. And I thought contraction was going to start, but it didn't feel like that. And then I just felt this huge bang from the inside out. Um, and it, it literally felt like a, I'd swallowed a bomb and it had gone off inside me. And um, it, the pain just heated my whole body up and it took over. I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't breathe. It was, it was a horrible pain. It was just unbearable. Um, and my mum was sitting at the end of the bed and my husband had literally just popped out. He said, right, I'm going to go and get a shower. Now you've had the epidural. I'll pop home, have a shower and I'll be back. Because <clears throat> the midwife has said, oh, we're only at six centimetres at this point. We've got a while. And um, I said to my mum, something's really wrong. Like something is wrong. And my mum laughed at me and said, oh, this is what labour's like. Mm. Like it hurts. Like it's going to get worse. You've got to get to 10 yet before you can even start pushing. And I think I must have just given her sort of devil eyes and my face drops. And I was like, no, mum, something is wrong. Like, really, really wrong. And at that point, my mum said that I'd completely changed colour and she knew something was wrong. She pushed the emergency button. And at this point, we was at 6am. Um, and the emergency from the emergency button being pushed to about 5 30 p.m i can't really tell you much other than what i was told um so it was 11 hours in surgery um 
the room flooded with people when the button got pushed. Um, and I can remember people, first of all, they were trying to make me drink something and it was all dripping down my face. Then I can remember being asked to sign things and read things. And I, I just had no capacity. I had no, I couldn't even see straight. I couldn't hear everything. Everything was muffled. Everything was moving really fast. Um, and then my midwife who had, had been with me from, from the night before, so all the way through the night, was standing so close, so close to the side of my face. And um, she held my hand and they were all talking to me, shouting stuff at me. And I just said to her, please don't, please don't leave me. Please don't let go of my hand. Um, and then that was the last thing I can really remember. Um, I can remember smells and sounds from the theatre. Um, and I'm not sure if they're memories from before I went asleep or if they're memories from throughout the surgery, because there were moments I know where they had to wake me up and they had to do things, um, different things throughout the surgery. Um, but six o'clock, button got pushed, in we went. Um, my notes say that I was cut at three minutes past six or four minutes past six, and my daughter was delivered at six minutes past six. Mm. So, so quick. Um, I was obviously asleep, missed that. Um, she came out flat. So she got rushed up to Skavu, the special baby unit where they um, resuscitated and got her back to normal colour. Um, and my husband went up to, to be with her. So they was up in Skavu together. He had to have a little drip and she had to have a few other little bits. But within hours, she was absolutely perfect. Um, no problems at all. They were really happy. Um, and then they went to work on me. Um, so my husband and my mum were out in the room that they had brought me out of and they were sitting in that room. Um, and quite a few hours had passed. Um, my husband went out and said to one of the midwives, oh, I just wondered, like, how long does it take after a cesarean? Like, we've been sitting in here ages. Like, what are we waiting for? Nobody had updated them. No one had spoke to them. And um, the midwife said, oh, um, your wife's Kirsty, isn't it? And he said, yeah. She said, okay, I'll ask one of the consultants to come out and speak to you. And um, like my husband, Cole, um, when he sort of spoke to me about bits since, he said the one thing he remembers is how quiet maternity was. Um, there was just no movements. There was nobody moving around. There was no, nobody coming down from wards. There was no porters moving about. Um, and he had gone out to the front to pick something up for my dad because my dad had dropped some bits off for them and um when he got out to the front all the doors were locked so he said to the security guard oh sorry I, I can't get out why are the doors locked and the security guard said oh we've shut the unit um we, we're not taking any more admissions at the moment we've got an emergency happening and he had no idea that I was the emergency he had absolutely no idea so he's gone back in and this consultant's come in the room and the consultant basically just really fobbed him off he was like oh we're just taking our time on her we're stitching her up we're doing our best to make the scar as minimal as we can bear with us we've had a little few complications but all completely normal with a c-section and she'll be out in no time she'll be in recovery and then then you'll get to all be together so off they go sit back in the waiting room and another few hours pass um and then he starts to get really anxious because then there starts to be a lot of movement in maternity there's a lot of new nurses coming in there's a lot of new consultants coming in and there's motorbikes turning up with blood um and the porter whose name was leon he was a lovely guy um was running backwards and forwards backwards and forwards with this tiny little like lunch box of blood um and then he come running through saying that there's no more blood there's there, there's nothing else i can't bring you anymore and then the motorbikes started to arrive and i think now was when cold started to put bits together and realized it's, it, she's the emergency this is oh. it, it, it's happening to her and um he was sitting in this tiny room him and my mum still just waiting we're now like past lunchtime um and another consultant come out and asked him to take a seat and he just said I'm so sorry but in films when they do that that, that means one thing I'm not sitting down whatever you've got to say just spit it out don't keep me waiting just tell me what you're gonna say and um, they said, we've, we've had a lot of problems um, and we'd, we'd like to ask you if, if you've got any family that 
you want here, please invite them up now. Invite them up to see the baby um, and invite them up to be with you. We're happy for you to have whoever you need in this room. Um, call whichever family you'd like here. And I said, what, what do we need family here for? And they basically said, we're not sure. We're not sure she's going to come out of theatre. Um, she's lost a lot of blood. And we are we're trying to save her. We can't tell you anything more, um, but we are we are trying our best and we will keep you updated when we can. But she is our priority and we're going to be in there doing the best we can. And he still hadn't heard any words of what was actually wrong or yeah. what they were doing to me. It was still just this emergency and they were trying their best and it was still so vague. And um, then my family started to arrive. So members of my family started to come in. And I think um, at that point, Carl sent my dad up to Skaboo. So my dad went up to Mia because Carl was very conscious of the fact that I wanted to do the first feed. I wanted to do the first bum change. And at the moment, there's people we don't know looking after our baby mm. up there. So off my dad went and bless him. He'd done that. He did me his first bath. He oh. did me his first nappy, me his first chat, everything. And he's not a baby person. You don't pass my dad a baby till they're like free mm-hmm. and they can play and walk on their own. But up he went and he did all of that. Um, and then a consultant that they'd never seen before come into the room and he introduced himself and he said, actually, I'm retired. Um, and I got a call this morning to say that there was a complex case and would I come in? I've arrived, um, I've come in and met with your wife and I have done my best, I've done everything I can. Um, I have to tell you that I've had to do a hysterectomy um, and that was my final option. It was that or she was going to go. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, so Carl was like, fine, absolutely fine. Does that mean she's out of theatre? And he said, no, we're just trying to get everything put together and, and get her stable and then we will be out, but you won't be able to see her. We're going straight to intensive care um, at the Royal London, which is probably about 20, 25 miles away. Um, We've got an air ambulance arriving and they're going to transfer her straight over. It's the blood specialist hospital and she needs needs to go there immediately. Um, So this air ambulance arrives and Carl was really unsure. um, And he sat having a conversation with my mum and said, "I, I just... I don't want to let her go. Mm-hmm. If, when she wakes up, if she wakes up, I don't want to have to say that I separated her from Mia. 
um, she'll kill me if they're in different hospitals. And if this is it and she's if this is it and she's not going to make it, I don't want her there and, and us here. So he said to the consultant, what are the chances? If I keep her here, what are the chances? And he said, I can't really tell you either way. So Carl said, right, well, she's staying here. If you can accommodate her in intensive care here, then, then she's staying here. So everything was wrapping up in theatre. Um, it was about 5.30 in the, in the afternoon, in the evening. And um, my dad was up in the, in the SCABU unit with the baby. Carl and my mum was in the waiting room still. And my dad was standing at, or sorry, the, the nurse was standing at the window upstairs on the second floor in Skaboo. And um, she's like, oh, what's going out on out there? The police have shut the road and there's like loads of, like it's really busy. And then her voice just dropped and she literally pushed my dad and said, sit down, do not move. When she realised it was me being wheeled across the road. Um, so the maternity and the main building have no links. There is now. There, um, there is now a bridge that links the two, but there never used to be. So the police blocked the road and they wheeled my bed out with all these guys with little red rucksacks on running alongside me with oxygen tanks and life support oh machines. All this stuff going on um, across the road, up into the main building, up in the lift and out into intensive care. Um, and obviously I'm still unconscious, um, not having a clue what, what's happened. I'd, I've lost a whole day now, not a clue. And um, they come in and speak to Carl again late that evening um, and say, we are going to attempt to turn off the breathing and we're going to see how she reacts. Um, during surgery, I'd actually gone into something called DIC, which is when your organs start to shut down. So the bang that I felt in the delivery room was a placental abruption. It basically happens at different stages of pregnancy, different in all women. Some people, their placenta slightly peels away from the edge of their, the lining of their womb um, and they have a partial abruption. They'll get a little bit of blood and it just means that the link between the placenta and the womb isn't as strong as it should be. Other women like me have a full abruption and the placenta comes completely away. Mine didn't just peel away. Mine exploded into a million pieces. Um, so that's the bang that I felt. That's what sent my body into shock. Um, that's what sent Mia's body into shock, which is why she came out how she did. Um, and then in theatre, because of what happened, the shock that my womb had gone through meant my womb wouldn't stop contracting. So even though the baby wasn't there anymore and there was no placenta there, it kept contracting. So initially they actually stitched me up and I burst through the stitches and bled out. Oh, um, Kirsty, gosh. It was, it, yeah, it was, I was asleep, so it wasn't bad for me. It was bad for, for everybody there. I mean, bless the, the staff that was in that room. So many of them were students because it's a university hospital, so I, I probably scarred their careers for life. But they, so they stitched me up, didn't work, I burst through it. And then they do something where they block the arteries. They block the blood supply to the womb to try and stop it. I burst through them. So they're like little metal coils. I burst through them and, and carried on bleeding. Um, and then they tried stitching my womb like an American football. So they stitch it round one way, stitch it round the other way to try and stop the contractions, hold it all together nice and tight. And I burst through that and again carried on bleeding. Um, so by this point, my body was in complete shock. I had to be resuscitated. I had a cardiac arrest. My organs had all started to fail. My liver had stopped. My lungs weren't functioning on their own. Um, at this point, I'd had 28 units of blood um, because as fast as they pumped in, I pumped out because of the contractions. And the consultant who was actually retired and obviously not on shift who came in, he basically made the decision, just take the womb away. Let's get it gone. That will stop the contractions. We can try and hold the blood in it and then we can deal with everything else. And ultimately it was that decision that, that saved me. Um, their concern was the length of time that got them to that point and how much my brain had been starved of oxygen and whatever else. So they weren't sure whether one, I'd breathe on my own and two, if I did, how I would come round and if I would 
come round. So even out of theatre, I think there was still a lot of uncertainty and Carl was very left in the dark and wasn't didn't know what was coming next, didn't know what he was going to be told next. And he, he it was very it was not out of the woods for a long time. Um, and I was up in intensive care. They took the tubes out the first time and I they had to put them back in. I didn't respond at all. So it all went back in again. Um, and then the following day they they tried again. And it it was a short space of time because they wanted to get me moving and they wanted to know what was going on as soon as possible. Um, and the second time that they removed them, I actually woke up. And I woke up with full everything. Everything, it was like a, a switch had been turned on. And I woke up and I um, screamed at this midwife standing, or a nurse, I was in intensive care standing next to me. Have I had the baby yet? Where, where's the baby? Is she in my tummy? Um, she's like, no, you've had the baby. She's with your husband. She's over in maternity. I was like, over in, like, wh- where am I? in intensive care and she's trying to explain stuff to me and I was so sort of away with the fairies and in and out that I think that was probably as far as the conversation went and then I was unconscious again um and then my consultant who I'd seen just as we'd pushed the emergency button that was the last time I'd seen her she came in to intensive care and I only knew it was her from her voice I could hear her voice and I could see the outline of her. And um, she said, God, you've been through so much and I've got so much to tell you. And I don't know where to start, but you're here. The baby's here. Your husband's fine. Your mum's fine. We've been looking after them all, I promise. And we will get you better. I don't know how long, but we will get you better. And then she was gone. And that was it. I didn't see her for ages. And um Time passed and they agreed I could go to high dependency. Went over to high dependency. And when I got there, there was two beds and a cot waiting for me. And um, they wheeled me in and then put me onto the bed. And then Cole come in and he had a bed and then they brought Mia in. And that was the first time Mm. I got to be with Mia. Um, Cole was really worried because they kept putting her on my chest and I just kept saying to him, can you just just put her back in the bed? I don't want to disturb her. Put her back, put her back in her cot. And I kept kind of dismissing it and um, or dismissing her, should I say. And um, I Cole pulled my mum outside and said, she's not she won't she won't touch her. She won't be with her. She won't. I don't know what's wrong. What, what more can I do? My mum said, don't worry, we'll get there. Like she's she's poorly. She's in pain. She's got a lot of drugs going through her. Like, we'll, we'll get there. She'll be absolutely fine. There, there's going to be no problem with bonding. I, I just know she'll be fine. And um, later on that same day, I sneezed. And the only way I can describe it is an egg shape, size, um, the shape and size of an egg, of a blood clot come out of one of my nostrils and, and onto the gown that I was wearing. And Carl was hysterical. He scooped it up off my chest, ran out into the corridor screaming. Um, and a consultant come in and said to me, where did that come from? And I said, my nostril, I, I've just sneezed. And he said, be honest with me. Can you see me? And I said, a little bit. And he said, what do you mean a little bit? I said, I can see you more now than I could have before I sneezed that out. He said, How, have you been blind since we brought you back? And I said, well, I can see outlines, um, but I can't fully see. And he laughed and I was absolutely mortified that he laughed. And he said, you silly girl, if you told me, I could have drained all your sinuses. He said, you've got so much blood pooled everywhere. It was, it was dripping out my fingertips. It was in my ears. I had so much blood pooled everywhere that it was blocking something and, and pressing on the nerves that... <sighs> makes your eyes work so he drains the other nostril and there was a clock just at the end of the bed and I and I said oh my god I can see the time and then it kind of dawned on me if I can see that that means I can see and that was the reason I hadn't been holding Mia I I had in my head I knew from the little bits that I did know about having a baby about the whole skin on skin thing Mm. straight after delivery and I was so worried that if she smelt me and she knew who I was, and then I died, she'd remember that. 
So I didn't want her on me because it wasn't until I could see that clock that I, that was the first time that I thought I'm going to survive. Until then, I, I didn't believe I could get better. I was so unwell and my body was so, it was just, I was so hollow that I just didn't think, I didn't think I could get better. And then once I could see that clock, it was the first huge improvement. And I, within minutes, I was like, I need to hold her now and I need, and, and that was it. I think from there, it was just onwards and upwards. And it was the three of us in our little room every day. Um, I started to bath her myself. They let me sit up in bed a little bit when I had a few of the drainage tube comes out, drainage tube comes out and I'd started to do bits. I started to change her on the bed. Um, I'd started to do the feeds myself. Um, and it just, it did, it just went from strength to strength and then bit by bit tubes and wires and things come out of me. Um, and then I slowly got moved up to a private room on the main ward. Um, and then after a few days in there, I was, I was ready to go home. And it was a long slog. Mm. Um, and even once I got home, it was so tough. Um, I had sort of really deep scarring from the drainage tubes. I had a huge cesarean cut that obviously was open a lot longer than it should have been and went a lot deeper than, than some people's would need to. Um, my body had been through so much. Um, that it took a real long time. Um, but just day by day, things just improved and everything just almost felt really normal. And I made it my aim to just not miss anything. I was I was going to probably <laughs> 10 baby groups a week. <laughs> like I was doing a morning session, an afternoon session. <laughs> Um, I was just around thousands of mums and babies all the time. I, I just, I just overly embraced it because I knew it was the only chance I was getting. I'd had a hysterectomy, and I, I wasn't going to miss a second of it. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to let her miss a second of me. And, and we mm. did so much, and I think it, it was fantastic. But there was, like, when you go to any baby group, the first discussion is, "Oh, how was your delivery?" And I sort of sat there in hundreds and hundreds of sessions and hundreds and hundreds of little coffee mornings and whatever else I went to oh yeah mine was fine Mm. yeah really good or oh it was yeah it was tough but it was fine and nobody knew I'd had a hysterectomy nobody knew what I'd been through um and then we used to go to a tiny little play group that was um, run. It was a government funded play group. And the two women that run it were volunteers. It was, it was such a, a lovely little play group. And there was one afternoon they said to us, um, we've got maternity services coming in this afternoon. And they would love to hear from new mums about their experiences. And I thought, oh, God, I need to get out quick because I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in this. I'm, I'm not mm. ready to talk about it. I need to get out. And um, Louise, one of the girls running, it was like, I, I would love you to stay. Would you stay and speak to them? Oh, God, what do I say? I was like, I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about my delivery. So just stay, just listen then. She said, you never know. Like, you might be nice to listen to other people. So, all right, I'll stay, I'll stay. And these three women walked in. And the first one was like, are you Kirsty? I went, yeah. Who are you? She said, do you not recognise me? I went, no. She went, I was in your delivery. And then the second one walked in and when the first one said to the second one, this is Kirsty and Mia, no surname, no nothing, just this is Kirsty and Mia. She went, oh, my God, I've been so desperate to see how you were doing and see how you are now. And I was like, we're really good. Thank you. We're fine. And then the third one come in and the third one was like, you won't know me because I wasn't involved in any of it, but I know all about it. I know oh. who you are, what happened to you. I know everything. And um. I kind of sat there in that session and, and spoke about it for the first time, but still quite candid still because they knew my story. I probably didn't have to go into too much detail. They kind of knew it was all a bit too raw for me to talk too much. Are you glad um, that happened? Are you glad they were there or would? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, if they hadn't been there, I wouldn't have spoke at all. I would yeah. have just sat there in silence and listened to everybody else. Um, I felt like I kind of had to do it because it mm. was them. Um but I also felt like I didn't have to go too far because it was them, which was really good. Um, but yeah, that was the first time after having her that I'd spoke about it. And by now she was probably three, four months. Um, 
but some really good some positives really come out of it because they see it from the other side and mm. although I'd had Cole's story and I had my birth notes and I had Mia's birth notes I hadn't spoke to anybody who was in the room um so they were like oh when this happened I didn't I was I was in shock and they were talking to me and they were like oh the, the consultant who come in he was absolutely fantastic and um things started to come back to me that, that they were talking about that I hadn't even remembered. I mean, when I was in high dependency, a guy just walked into my room, didn't knock on the door anything, just walked into my room, normal clothes, no uniform, no nothing. I was like, oh, can I help you? He's like, you don't recognise me, same as everyone kept saying to me, you don't recognise me. I was like, no. He's like, I'm the retired consultant who came into your surgery. He said, I had to come back today to visit you and just see how you were doing. Um, he said, do you mind if I take a seat? I said, no, of course not. Sit down. And um, he said, I've worked in obstetrics and paediatrics and maternity for well over 30 years. He said, and I've never walked into a theatre and had to sit down and compose myself before I start. He said, you were stone cold. And I, I didn't think we were going to save you. He said, so for me to be back here today with you, he, I, he said, I've ended my career. As, as amazingly as I could have he said it's for how severe your abruption was for me to be able to sit here and have mum and daughter still here he said I I could have never guessed it from that day so yeah what we went through was absolutely crazy and it's such a Un, it's so unheard of like so few people have even heard of abruptions or I'd never heard of it I'd it, it wasn't even a word that had been floated about on the basis of the heavy bleeds that I'd had and that, that's the first symptom of an abruption so um, how how did you recover like mentally how, how were you did, did you receive counseling or support from the hospital so initially um their biggest concern was the fact I'd had a hysterectomy. Mm. Um, so the hospital that I had given birth in, um, they are, it, it, it's quite a, um, it's, it's in a very sort of multicultural area. So they get a real mixed bag of, of ethnicities and cultures and religions. And it's, it's quite um, common for a lot of the religions that they have in there to, um, not accept hysterectomies. Um, okay. So a lot of Asian religions, and um, I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure the midwife I was speaking to was saying some African cultures as well. Um, it's almost like if the woman can't have any additional children, their, their work's almost done, and, and sometimes the husband will actually leave them for something like that. So a lot of what they were worried about was more how how our family dynamic would be based on that. And Cole was absolutely fine with it. He he was so pleased that we was alive. He wouldn't have cared whether you took off one of my legs to save me. I mean, it, it made no difference. And I was just grateful to be there that again, the hysterectomy was not the end of the world. Like I've got her and, and that, that was good enough. Um, but when we left hospital, we had a few sort of community appointments where the midwife was coming up to the house and, um, at that stage, they did offer me counselling um, and it didn't go very well, not very well at all. Um, I went to the first session and she had a copy of my notes because she was actually a maternity counsellor who was provided through the maternity of the hospital. Um, so she had some of my notes and bits and she was like, oh, um, so I see here that you, you wrote at the bottom of your birth plan. Oh, if this happens, if that happens, ignore all of this and do whatever you need to. Do you think subconsciously you knew that something might go wrong? And I picked my bag up. Bye. And then <laughs> walked out, didn't even say goodbye. And then I got outside the door in absolute floods of tears. And Cole said to me, well, what the hell's happened? You was in there seconds. What are you doing out here crying? She said it was all my fault. She blamed me. She said I knew it was going to happen. And that was it. I couldn't go back in. And I didn't see a counsellor again. Um and I didn't actually think I needed to. I didn't think it had mentally caused me any problems until um, 
until Mia was about six months. Um, we had a few problems at about three months. She started having seizures and we got rushed to Great Ormond Street Hospital, so the, the big main hospital in London. And I got told that she had fluid on her brain and they was going to need to operate. And um, I, I sort of fell to pieces and then I went back in the room and I said, no, I, I think you're wrong and I'd like a second opinion. And he looked at me and I said, if you knew what I've been to, been through to get to this point, you'd understand why I'm asking for a second opinion and you wouldn't question me. Um, so off they went and got me a second opinion and said, no, it's not, it's not fluid, you're right. It's um, a grey mass on her brain and it's scarring at the back of her brain, possibly from a trauma. That's when I told them about my delivery and they said the scarring is, is probably from her delivery. Um, and then over the few months that followed that, it all kind of fell apart a little bit and they told us that um, where the scarring sat, um, where her nervous system ended and her brain met, um, which she'd probably have no motor neuron skills. So she'd probably never be able to sit up. She'd never be able to walk. Um, she'd never hold a pen. She wouldn't have much control over her neck and her head. Um, she'll remain like a floppy baby in that aspect. Um, loads of stuff, loads of stuff they told us. And um, one by one, she did it all. Absolutely every single thing that, every milestone that any baby's meant to meet, she met. And we went back for another appointment and um, she walked. She was walking at nine months and she walked up the corridor and the consultant said to me, oh, have you not brought Mia with you today? I said, this is Mia. And he went to me, oh, could I ask you to wait for another five minutes? I'm just going to go and pull the right notes and stuff. I said, no, if you've got Mia's notes, they are the right notes. You're reading the right child, but this is that child. And they whipped us back in, did another MRI double-checked everything and said it's all still the same. We have no idea how this child has got them MRI results. Um, they were just absolutely flabbergasted and she just, again, went from strength to strength and she's absolutely, there's nothing that kid can't do. Anything she's her she's mother's ever, daughter, Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing she can't do. She's the strongest little thing. Honestly, she is the strongest little thing I've ever met. There's nothing that can't do so it's it's been the biggest roller coaster mm. and it's been just so tough but at the same time so it's, it's all with it's all we've known I didn't have mm. anything else to compare it to I didn't have a perfect delivery or a perfect I, I that, that's it that's all I've ever known so it, it took me a really long time to be able to talk about it with the emotions that come with it, but with the joy that we survived it. Mm. And I think I went through a stage of only being able to have the emotions. And then I went through a stage of only being able to have the joy and, and being so matter of a fact about it, that it, it sounded like someone else's story almost. Um, but now I feel like it's my story and it's it's a happy story, even though it's a sad story, because the ending is, uh, well, beggar's belief. I mean, it's, I, I never, ever in a million years would have thought that I was a, tough enough to have survived what we survived. But physically, I know from people I've spoken to who have had postpartum hemorrhages and they say it said it's taken months and months just for your body to process the blood transfusions yeah. and that never even entered my head you know obviously after blood loss you need to recover but there's yeah. so much more it to it than just um I was I, again it, again how I was during pregnancy kind of making excuses for everything because I was pregnant I kind of did the same thing again I, I made excuses because I was a new mum so I was so tired all the time but all new mums are tired or I used to get really lightheaded, but that's because I haven't eaten because I was feeding the baby and forgot about myself or um, I was still on pain relief. Um, minimal, minimal pain relief. I mean, I started on a morphine drip originally and then I moved on to oral morphine 
um, and I made the decision that I was going to leave hospital with no medicated drugs. I, I didn't want to bring them home. I didn't want to be on them and be drowsy around the baby because I knew mm. Carl was going back to work and I'd be on my own. Um, so I went right down to just two paracetamol. Um, so I, I was kind of putting a lot of stuff down to the pain and, and this and that. And um, it actually took till she started nursery. So she was four before I started to address the problems that I was having because I was still passing them off as being this new mum, but I wasn't that much of a new mum anymore. I was four years mm. on um, and they found that I have got a heart condition that probably has come from that delivery. Um, and the way they sort of explained it to me was that when my heart stopped in surgery and they restarted it, it's kind of like a clock where the batteries are on their way out. So it sort of loses time. I lose rhythm over time and then it has to be reset and then I lose rhythm again. Um, so I've got a, a form of arrhythmia. Um, but fortunately, we live so close to London that I'm under BART's. I'm under the best hospital in the country for cardiology. Um, and I've been given the most fantastic device. Um, I don't know if you can see it, actually. You might be able to reach it over. This is basically my lifeline. Um, I've got a small, small kind of USB stick inside me um, and it's got 4G and it links me to Bart's Hospital. So it constantly, 24 hours a day, monitors my heart if it pauses, if it dips, if it goes too fast, if it goes too slow. This tracks everything, this records everything, this sends it all off um, so they know where I am, what's happening. Um, so yeah, extremely, extremely lucky. Um, but the the heart condition does come with a few rubbish side effects. It makes me really tired. Um, I get dizzy now and again. Um, occasionally I can pass out because the, the levels drop so low. Um, but again, that's just become part of life. So I think it's a small price to pay. You've been through so much. It's been a long, it's been a long nine years, it has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah for so long I felt so guilty for being upset by it or for feeling emotional by it or for um for feeling anything for it because I just kind of felt like it didn't it happened to me but it was them that had to go through it I didn't go through it my body went through it but body went through it yeah your body yeah, did. I, yeah. I spent so long just feeling like oh just I can't be upset by this it, it's not it like they imagine sitting in that room being told phone your family or your daughter's not coming out of surgery or your wife I mean at one point Carl thought he was coming home with neither of us when when he first got to the hospital my mum said she changed colour they've whipped her off to surgery he thought we were both gone and then when Mia come out she was fantastic he then got into this panic of I've got to go home with a baby on my own what how, where where do I even start and him and my mum had sat and planned he would move into their house. Um, they would help her. They would help him raise Mia. Um, they'd named her because they, they didn't want, if I died, they didn't want um, Mia to just have the mum or the daughter of Kirsty on her bracelet. They wanted her to have a name. So they'd named her, um, the priest had done a blessing on her all, all before I'd even opened my eyes. So I felt like they had gone through so much more than me that I almost had a cheek to be upset about it. I almost, like, who am I to be upset about sleeping through it? And that, it, that I think that sort of gave me a bit of a mental block to it for a long time and then made the emotions of it a lot rawer when I did sort of think, hang on. <laughs> this massively happened to me and I've I've got a right to feel that way um yeah. and then yeah and then I got to where I am now and I I I don't carry the guilt about it I don't I, I'm in a much better place with it all than I than I was nine years ago even five years ago well thank you so much for offering to share thank you for giving me the opportunity me. to share it no, I really appreciate it thank you I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. 
If you'd like to share your story, you're more than welcome to. You can get in touch via Instagram at Ireland's Birth Stories or you can reach out over the website irelandsbreathstories.ie. I look forward to bringing you another episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.